Good evening. It's good to see you all. I, uh, I've been told that there's some uh, bad traffic on Peachtree Street, uh, which is just norm, I, I think. Uh, but we'll hopefully have some others come in the next few minutes. But we'll go ahead and get started. Um, welcome to our second lesson uh, in our second course in our new Theology Matters program. The idea of this program is to offer seminary-level uh, educational opportunities in a format that's accessible, engaging, and relevant to a lay audience. And I hope that you all have, if you were here with us last week, uh, felt that to be the case. And so I am delighted uh, that you all are with us this evening. If you were here last week, I'm glad you're back. I always like to add at the second week of the class that the ad drop period is soon coming to a close. And as a word of warning, uh, if you wish to drop the class after this Thursday, there'll only be partial refunds. Uh, for your tuition, so please take note of that. Uh, if you were not here last week, for whatever reason, uh, I'm glad you're with us uh, this evening. All of, as you can see, all of our uh, lectures are being recorded in both video and audio format, and if you miss uh, one of the weeks, you can go to our website, uh, www.firstpresatl.org backslash theology matters, all one word, and you can click on uh, podcast links, and you can essentially get the audio versions of these classes, and, and they're typically posted within a few days of each lecture. Uh, at the end of the course as a whole, after the end of the four weeks, we will put all this together uh, with video content, lecture outlines, discussion questions, as a standalone digital course that should be very, very easy to access. So look forward to that uh, in, the, uh, in the coming weeks. Um, as always, we have some Starbucks coffee and some desserts from Highland Bakery. At any point, you're welcome uh, to get up and have a refill or a second, depending on your New Year's resolution proclivities. Um, I want to say a special thanks for some folks who helped set this up. Once again, to John and his crew, uh, we literally could not do this without you. I don't know that I would know how to turn on that camera. Uh, and so a special thanks to them for all their work. Uh, to Dottie Hitchcock, who does a lot of the behind-the-scenes work and getting this room set up and getting the food here. Uh, for Mike Tillman, uh, who helped pick up some coffee this week. Uh, as we already talked about, I'm in your debt for that for now several weeks. Um, so we're grateful for all those who have worked uh, to set this up. Um, if you haven't signed in yet, uh, there is a sign-in sheet at the uh, table outside. Please do so at the break um, if you haven't done so already. Let me also mention, if you're in one of these special seats that has an obstructed view, uh, and that bothers you, please feel free to uh, move. If uh, having an obstructed view of me is a, uh, an asset or uh, an advantage, please stay where you are. I certainly understand. Um, and uh, I think without, oh, let me just also mention one last word, uh, thing by word of introduction. Um, because we are recording these classes, to make the audio versions into a, a more of a bite-sized piece, each week essentially has two sessions. So like last week, somewhere near the middle, we're going to pause for about a five-minute break. You can run to the bathroom, get some more coffee or dessert. And then uh, we'll reconvene for what will essentially be the second part. And I'll label those parts, uh, especially for the digital uh, uh, version of the class. So without further ado, let's pray together. The ancient rabbis tell the story that God first gave the Ten Commandments to the Edomites. But they rejected it because of the commandment against murder. Then the God gave the commandments to the Ammonites and the Moabites. But they rejected it because of the commandment about adultery. Then God gave the Ten Commandments to the Ishmaelites. 
but they rejected it because of the commandment against stealing. Finally, last of all, God offered the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, who responded by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God, may we be a people who understand these ancient commandments better, and may we be a people who, by your grace and through your guidance, respond to them in faith and obedience. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, session three, you shall have no other gods before me. In this session, we'll explore together the meaning and the theology of what we'll call the first commandment. But before doing so, I just want to say a brief word about where we're headed this week and then the following two weeks. Last week, if you recall, we, did, we began our journey with what I call Decalogue 101. Uh, we gave somewhat of an overview of some of the major historical, literary, and theological issues in the study of the Ten Commandments. But starting today, and then again for the next two weeks, we'll turn to the specific commandments themselves. In each case, start moving my clicker around here. In each case, uh, we will consider several things. We'll think about the contextual meaning of each commandment. We'll also think about their canonical development. That is to say, how did later biblical authors understand and interpret these commandments? And we'll also, on occasion, keep an eye on the question of the cultural influence of the Ten Commandments. That is, where and how do we encounter these, these laws, these ancient laws, outside of the, the walls of the church or the synagogue? Now, of course, that means we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, technically, I've not done a single one of the Ten Commandments, and we're already in the second week. Now, that's not totally fair, because the prologue is, in the Jewish tradition, if you recall, one of the Ten Commandments. But we still have a lot uh, to cover, and we won't spend an equal amount of time on each commandment. Our balance of time is designed to reflect the relative space given to each commandment in the Decalogue itself. So, for instance, the first five commandments in the Decalogue take up three quarters of the space. That's why we'll spend only one week on the last five commandments. So in week two, today, we'll do commandments one and two. Next week, we'll do commandments three, four, and five. And then in our final week together, we'll do commandments six through ten. So you might think of it as today we'll do the big two, next week we'll do the next three, and then finally we'll do the final five. Um, you also might think of this in more theological terms. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about how God relates, or excuse me, how Israel relates to God in worship. The first two commandments primarily have to do with that issue. And then next week, we'll talk about how Israel relates to God in word and in time. And then finally, we'll talk about how Israel relates to God in and through community. That'll be the last five commandments. So this gives you a little bit of an overview of where we're headed together in, the next, uh, in this week and the three weeks to come. Let's turn then um, to the first commandment. And as we consider this together, I want to raise three critical questions about the meaning and significance of this commandment. My first question is one of scope and delimitation. That is to say, where does the first commandment end? It might seem like a simple answer to that question, but it's actually, as we alluded to last week, a little more complicated than you might think. My second question is an interpretive one. What exactly does the phrase before me, in you shall have no other gods before me, what does that phrase before me mean, and how does it inform the theology? How does our interpretation of that phrase inform the theology present behind this commandment? And then third, my third question is a canonical one. 
how do later biblical authors reflect on the meaning and importance of the Ten Commandments in Scripture? So there are the three questions that will guide us through this first part. So, part one. Where does the first commandment end? And I should say, by the way, uh, that I had handouts of the uh, Ten Commandments, both in the Exodus version and the Deuteronomy version, out on the front table. Hopefully you've uh, picked up a copy of them so you can easily refer to. If not, maybe you can send a representative out to grab you a couple, or just simply grab some. Dottie, thank you, um, uh, to just have some easy reference point. So where does the first commandment end? You'll recall from last week that the Lutheran, Catholic, and Jewish numbering systems group the commandment to have no other gods with the next two verses, which deal with having no idols, or I should say making no idols. So in the Lutheran, Catholic, and Jewish traditions, uh, those two commandments are joined together and numbered as just one single commandment. In both cases, uh, in all of these numbering systems, there is a tendency to see the commandment to have no idols as a specification of what it means um, or excuse me, let me start, try that again. In all of these cases, the commandment to have uh, no, other, no idols is a specification of what it means to have no other gods. That is to say, you shall have no other gods by which we mean don't make idols. So in not making idols, you fulfill the commandment to not have any other gods. That's the logic behind the Lutheran, the Catholic, and the Jewish tradition. And this view is not without good warrant. And I'll name just two reasons why, which make sense of joining together what in the Reformed tradition are called two separate commandments. The first, in ancient Hebrew manuscripts, so manuscripts dating back a thousand years ago, really, really old manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible, there were no verses. So you can't simply go back and see verse divisions that delineate which of the commandments is which. However, uh, in these ancient manuscripts, and I'll show you an example here from the Leningrad Codex. This is the oldest complete version of the Hebrew Bible uh, that we possess today. It's, about a it's a little over a thousand years old. In the Leningrad Codex, even though there are no verses, the ancient scribes who wrote out this text indented or left a bunch of white space, as you can see, at the beginning of each successive commandment. Now, what's interesting about this is that they don't do that anywhere else, or virtually anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. The reason is because they didn't want to waste space. Paper was very, very expensive, so they literally wanted to fill all the white space with text. But when it comes to the Ten Commandments, they use these spaces to delineate the beginning of each commandment. So, for instance, here, lo tisha et shem uh, Adonai Eloheka, you shall not lift up the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. So that's commandment three. Here is the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy, shomor et yom ha-shabbat. Here's the commandment to honor the father and mother. And then you can see here, we have all the thou shalt not commandments. Thou shalt not murder, uh, commit adultery, steal, um, have false witness, and then finally, here are the coveting commandments. So do you see how they each are clearly delineated? Well, let's look at the first two commandments. What do you notice? There's no space. They jam those first two commandments. You shall not have uh, other, any other gods beside me, and you shall not make 
for yourselves pestle, graven image, which we'll talk about in a second. In the actual kind of uh, typesetting, it's not type, right? It's just, it's just writing. But in the actual formatting of this text, those two commandments were not delineated, whereas all of the others were. And if you actually look back and did the counting, this makes sense. There are nine lines here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So they were counting that first commandment, no other gods and no idols, as one unit. Does that make sense so far? All right, so that's one reason why uh, this, this numbering tradition makes sense. A second reason uh, is a literary one. Um, the phrase which we encounter later in the idol's commandment, that you shall not bow down to them. Every other time that a phrase occurs in the Hebrew Bible, uh, or at least nearly every other time it occurs, it's always in reference to other gods. It's always in reference to other gods. So the language seems to be consistent with thinking of these two parts of the commandment going together. Now, here's my interpretation, here's my view. I think there are no doubt that these two ideas are related. No other gods and no idols, clearly related. That, in fact, is the reason for treating them together tonight. Both have to do, in some sense, with Israel's uh, worship to God. But I think still it is helpful to identify two distinct theological issues that underlie these commandments and give warrant to separating them. The first commandment, in my opinion, has to do with the improper object of worship. It wants to specify who you should worship. The second commandment, that is the one about idols, has primarily to do with the improper manner of worship. You've gotten the how, or the who correct, but you've not gotten the how correct. So I think they're related issues, but the first commandment has to do with the who of worship, and the second commandment has to do with the how of worship. And I'll explain both of them in a little bit more detail. So, with that, let's look a little bit more closely at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The basic meaning of this phrase should be relatively clear. It's referring to uh, the exclusive worship of Yahweh as Israel's deity. It can be understood as the most immediate and direct response to what, has God, what God has articulated in the prologue. That is to say, because God has delivered the Israelites out of the house of Egypt, out of, uh, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, therefore, the Israelites should be exclusively devoted to God. So that prologue leads very naturally into this first commandment about who you should worship. We might even read the prologue as a type of uh, motivation clause. That is to say, because Israel was led out of Egypt by God, therefore they should worship this God alone. God's historical deliverance of Israel is the reason for Israel's exclusive devotion to God. It can be no other way, really. Uh, in other words, in, there's an inherent connection between God's identifying name, I am the Lord, and God's identifying claim on the Israelites. You shall have no other gods. That is, I am your God, and you shall have no other. If this is how God is, then this is how Israel should be. That's that inherent connection between the prologue and the first commandment. So this much is clear. There's not much controversial about this. But there's still the matter of how to interpret the phrase uh, before me, al pane in the Hebrew. So I want to do a, a quick taps exercise. Remember, that's talking, aloud, paired, sharing. So just take two minutes, turn with a partner, or maybe in threes if you wish, 
and I want you to discuss what does before me mean? What is the theology articulated in those two little words in Hebrew, al pane, before me? How does it define what it is that God expects of us in this commandment? So take two minutes to talk amongst yourselves, and then we're going to come back together and explore this issue in more detail. Okay, let's come back together. Let's come back together. I'm interested to hear what you all thought. What does, what is being, what are we instructed to do? How does that phrase, before me, qualify this commandment? What did you all think? What's that again, Paul? Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah. Dan. Okay, so a hierarchy. We're God's at the top for sure, but there's a hierarchy. Yeah, that's a great thought. Please. Ah, we're going to get to that. <laughs> any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts about what it might be? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, there is a sense, we'll, we'll flesh it out a little bit more clearly, but in the ancient world, there were greater and lesser gods. Not all gods were on the same equal plane. Not all gods were created equal, if you will. There was a clear hierarchy, Dan, in that sense, and we'll, we'll flesh that out. But let me get any, any other thoughts on this. This is great. That's right. So priority. That's a really important uh, part of this commandment. It's about priority. Yes. Yes. He's yeah. That God is the alpha dog, or spelled backwards, God, uh, in this context. Um, uh, so yeah, the, you guys are all circling around. You guys have put your finger on it. Not surprisingly, um, there are at least two different ways to interpret the phrase before me. And, and this is critical because each one implies a different underlying theology that we need to come to understand. One, one possibility is captured by the NRSV, and that is literally before me, or you might translate in front of me. This picks up on the literal meaning of the Hebrew phrase al-panai, uh, meaning uh, before my face. That's what it says, you shall have no other gods before my face. So what might it mean to have no other gods before my face. Well, we might understand it spatially. This is to say, no other God should get between you and Yahweh. So no other God should be before God's face, that is, closer to you. That is, don't look at any other gods. God should be the one before your face, not some other God. But we might, Walter, understand this as a, in terms of priority. That is to say, God, Yahweh, Israel's God, is the most important. I love that idea of the, the alpha dog God. Yahweh might be number one. Um, so, so both of those ideas kind of have the spatial sense and the sense of priority puts God first. That is unequivocally clear. And that is at the heart of the Jewish understanding of these commandments. But in either case, there is something striking to note, isn't there? That is to say, this commandment assumes that there are other gods. 
This commandment assumes that there are other gods that Yahweh is ahead of. This commandment is not a commandment about monotheism. What does monotheism mean? It's the belief that one God exists. This is not a monotheistic text. This is not a monotheistic text. The theological word for what this text is, is monolatry. Monolatry. That's the belief that there are many gods, but that one of them reigns supreme. One of them is chief above all the other gods. The way I say it is that Yahweh might be number one, but he's not the only one. There are other gods out there. Now, this is a profound statement because we don't believe this today, or at least at the core of a Christian theology is the belief in monotheism. And we typically would trace that back to the first commandment, and many New Testament writers do, and yet, in the original context, in the historical context of this first commandment, it is not an expression of monotheism. In fact, it, it absolutely overturns the idea of monotheism. Yes, Yahweh is number one, but he is not the only one. In fact, we can find this same theology, this theology of monolatry, not monotheism, monolatry, in the oldest texts in the Hebrew Bible. For instance, uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, that song that the Israelites sing after they cross uh, the, the, the Red Sea, scholars think that this is probably the oldest text in terms of when it was written. It's not the oldest story, but it, when it was actually written down, this is probably the oldest text. Listen to what the people say. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? There are other gods, but none of them is as quite as great as the God of Israel, this Yahweh. This is a beautiful expression, not of monotheism, but monolatry. So that's one interpretation, and I think, in fact, uh, the most historically accurate interpretation of what this commandment means. The other interpretation really reflects something of a later theological development. In this reading, Alpane, the Hebrew word, might be translated something, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> something like besides me or except me. Only a few English translations go in this direction. But if you translate something like beside me or except me, it might still have the flavor of monolatry that is of priority, but maybe if you squint your eyes, maybe it also makes a claim beyond priority to, to the level of existence. That is to say, it's something closer to monotheism. There is only one God who exists. Now, in point of fact, that is a tough reading of this text. There's very little evidence to suggest that in its original context, this commandment was monotheistic. And yet, the theology of monotheism does develop in the Hebrew Bible, is inherited by the New Testament writers, and does become a foundation of all Christian theology. But the point is, it's a later development in the Old Testament. This is, this is a broader point here that sometimes we think that the, that the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, floated down from heaven as a completed unit. But in fact, the Old Testament, of course, is a historical document. And as a historical document, we can find in it a development of ideas. So, for instance, if we turn to texts that are exilic or post-exilic, so some 400 years after, at least, the text we encountered in the book of Exodus, we get statements like this, particularly uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah says this, 
uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Now this is a really different statement than who is like you among the gods. Uh, this statement here by Isaiah in the 6th century maybe, maybe the, the 7th century perhaps, is a statement of monotheism. Consider again Isaiah 44, 8. There, it, there, it, this time the prophet forms it as a question. Is there any God beside me? There is no other rock. I know not one. Again, a clear statement of monotheism that's very different than what we encountered in Exodus and is even very different than what we encountered in the Ten Commandments. So here, in fact, is the takeaway. Um, the idea of monotheism is a later theological development in the Old Testament and is not already present in the first commandment. In its original setting, the, ten com the first commandment makes an important but only initial step in the theological development of an increasingly exclusive form of devotion to Yahweh. The, there's a move here in history from Yahweh is number one among the gods to Yahweh is the one and only God. But it's a movement that takes some time and isn't really for, for, fully in place until the post-exilic period. So the first commandment then is the starting point for monotheism, not its conclusion. It puts us on a trajectory but it doesn't yet fully resolve the issue. Now, I know this point is a fine one between monolatry and monotheism, so let me just pause briefly for any questions uh, to clarify that point. Bill? Isn't there the possibility that the reference to the other gods doesn't necessarily mean there isn't the God of the Israelites, but gods of the Egyptians or gods of other people, and, and that the Egyptians started out with one God, mm. Well, I, I think that's right. So these, I think this is clearly a reference to the many, many, many gods of Israel, uh, Israel's neighbors. But remember, Israel didn't enter into a, a, a vacant land. It entered into a land that was populated by people who believed in many, many different gods. So already from the earliest times, there was a question of whose, Isra whose god would Israel choose, or uh, which god would Israel choose, right? We have the testimony that it is Yahweh who brought Israel out of Egypt. But there's an altogether different question of how Israel begins to stray in that relationship and follow after these other gods that they encounter, in either from Egypt, from Babylon, from Assyria, later from Persia, or in fact from the land of Canaan. So I think it is a question of loyalty and priority among these other gods of the nations. Ah, so, so in that sense, it would be you shall have no other gods, kind of as you did in the past. Is that is that your sense of it, or? Well, you couldn't, <coughs> you couldn't go up as another god. Ah. Yeah. Start off with me and end with me. I don't yeah. Think that's necessarily yeah. Yeah. I like it, Bill. Publish. Write that up. <laughs> Any other questions on this point before we move on? <laughs> so I, I think the concept is hard to grab and then we've always grabbed on monotheism. But, but as you know, uh, Hinduism, yeah. Hinduism, we have lots of different gods. And so yeah. it's basically got a hierarchy in there. And once you get into one and try to figure that all out, there are a lot of those kinds of mm -hmm. people who have gods and different gods to them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Making one bill change at one time would probably be hard. That's right. I mean, we have in our heads that Christianity is monotheistic and that it got that monotheism from Judaism. And that all is well and, and true, but that Judaism, uh, Judaism's monotheism had to develop through the pages of the Old Testament. And, and here, the last thing I want to say about this is that I actually think there is something for the church today, for, for believers today, I actually think the theology of monolatry is more significant than the theology of monotheism. The reason I say that is that if God is, is chief among the gods, then it puts a priority and an emphasis on our choice, on our decision, our, our, our devotion to that God. And I think, and this is a, a conversation for a, uh, another day, um, I, I don't disagree with monotheism by any extent of the imagination, but I think we can talk metaphorically about other gods in our lives. I think we can talk metaphorically about the ways in which other things draw our devotion away from God and that we approach other things as if they were a God. So if we can revisit the idea of the first commandment as a commandment to put God first among the gods and we understand gods metaphorically as those things that grab our attention and grab our devotion, I think that actually has a profound meaning for the church today, even more so than just the idea of, look, there's one God, there's no other gods, and either you believe in that God or you don't. Um, th that's profound, too, but I, this other thing recognizes the ways in which all of our, um, all of our lives are torn. We're all uh, conflicted people in terms of where and to whom we, um, we aim our devotion. So I think that part of the First Commandment is still very relevant for the church today. I want to move on uh, to the third and final question that has to do with this first commandment. And that is, how is this commandment thought about and reflected upon in the rest of the scriptures? Well, one of my favorite Old Testament uh, professors, now retired from Princeton Theological Seminary, Patrick Miller, claims that the whole of scripture, the whole of scripture is in some sense commentary on or story of the first commandment. If we think of scripture as a narrative, we might say it's a narrative about Israel and then later the church's exclusive devotion to Yahweh. It's a, not, it's a commentary on the first commandment. This is, of course, very, very true of the prophets who constantly call Israel back to exclusive devotion to God and call it into question when it wanders and strays. It's no less true of the Psalms. Luther asks, what is the whole Psalter but meditation and exercises based on the first commandment? What is the whole Psalter but meditation and exercises based on the first commandment? We see this in the enthronement psalms where God is declared as king over the other gods and king over the whole world. We see this in the hymns in the Psalter where God is sole recipient of thanksgiving and praise. We even see this idea in little itty-bitty metaphors in the psalms. Consider, for instance, Psalm 18 one and two, perhaps one that is familiar to you, at least from hymnals, if not from the text itself. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This wonderful string of metaphors about God. Now, in what sense is this commentary on the first commandment? Well, here we need to go back to Luther. Luther says, to have a God 
is nothing else than to trust and believe him with our whole heart. It is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To obey the first commandment is to see God as your refuge and deliverer. And that is exactly what this psalm is articulating through its metaphor. So I call it, half-jokingly, a miniaturized, or perhaps better yet, a metaphorized uh, commentary on the first commandment. There in that familiar lyrics that we sing in our hymnal is a commentary on the first commandment. Um, elsewhere in the Old Testament, and I'll go through this somewhat uh, uh, briefly, there's commentary on what it means to violate the first commandment. Now, the most, what's the most obvious form of violation of the first commandment? Worshiping other gods. And, and there are many stories of where Israel has explicitly worshipped other gods. Um, the one that comes to mind for me, the classic case, is 1 Kings 18, where there's this epic showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and it's this question of really who, which God reigns supreme. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? Now, there's other cases of this, particularly in the prophetic literature, but that's the one that stands out. But actually, um, there's another way to think about the violation of the first commandment. In, in, in modern time, the way we think about violating the first commandment is through the concept of atheism. That is, one who simply does not believe in any other gods cannot be following the first commandment. But what's interesting to note is that the Old Testament never says a word about atheism. Although that's the thing that many Christians tend to worry about. The Old Testament does not say a thing about atheism, uh, not believing in other gods. Rather, how the Old Testament talks about the violation of the first commandment is not atheism, but amnesia. It's forgetting what God had done and has done and will do. This is pronounced in the book of Deuteronomy, which in its own right might be called a book of remembrance. Uh, obedience in Deuteronomy is all about remembering. Remembering what God had done for you in Egypt. Remembering what God had done in guiding you through the desert. Remembering what God had done in revealing God's self to you through Moses, through, at Sinai, through the tabernacle. Uh, obedience is remembrance, and therefore disobedience, particularly disobedience to the first commandment, is all about forgetting. Is all about forgetting who God is and what God has done. Now, let me make two final points briefly. Um, the first commandment is not just talked about in prohibitions. That is, there's reflection on the first commandment throughout the scriptures, not in the form of thou shalt not. Rather, there are positive versions of the first commandment. Calvin actually recognized that every single prohibition in the Ten Commandments, that is the thou shalt not laws, that every single prohibition has, or is has an implied positive counterpart, and every single positive injunction in the Ten Commandments has an implied negative counterpart. So think of this first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods. How would you frame that as a positive commandment? What is its reciprocal expression? What might we say? Have only one God. That's right. So the only so I so framed from God's perspective, I am the only God. I think an example, or another example, along with them, 
are these expressions, again, particularly in Deuteronomy, that, ex that express how devoted you are to be to God. So, for instance, at Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength or might. It's in that threefold loving of God with heart, soul, and might that one fulfills the commandment that's at the top of the Decalogue. We also hear uh, echoes um, of the first commandment, I think, in the creeds of the early church. But one example is Ephesians 6, 4-6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This confer uh, here, in this case, the first commandment, frames a discourse not only about the singleness of God, but that singleness of God for the New Testament author here is the justification of an ethic of unity among other people. Because God is one, we should be one. We move from a theological claim about who God is to an ethical claim about how the church should be as one body. So then the first commandment I would say, in conclusion, frames a discourse that runs all throughout Scripture about the need for Israel and later for the church to be exclusively devoted to this one God, this one Yahweh, who not only acts as a God of deliverance for the Israelites in Egypt, but continues to act as a God of deliverance for the church and for believers today. Let's pause here for about a five-minute break. If you have any questions about the first half of our lecture, uh, please come up. I'll be here during the break. Please come up and see me, and we can chat. So we will reconvene uh, in just about five minutes. <laughs>